Today's Dribcast is presented by American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. Heart disease is the leading cause of death in Texas. Help us wipe the burden. Join the You're the Cure movement at act.youretheCure.org. And Texas Association of School Boards. Stand up for Texas public schools. They're counting on us. Take action at standupfortxpublicschools.org. Texas talking, oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking, ah, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking, tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are in Texas Hi, this is Charles Pierce, author of the Esquire.com politics blog. I'll be, in, I'll be in Austin this fall to get my, my semi-annual barbecue fix and to attend the Texas Tribune Festival. Until then, enjoy this week's Texas Tribune podcast. Here is your host, Ross Ramsey. Thank you. This is Ross Ramsey here on the second Wednesday of July with your Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly podcast about the biggest stories in Texas politics. I'm joined by Tribune editor Ian Mitra. Hi. Reporter Alexa Ura. Hello. And the golden voice of the Golden Triangle, Jay Root. Here I am. The Golden Triangle is well represented this week. Absolutely. The Golden Triangle is here. That's right. The all corners of the state, actually. Well, we've got, we got the we've South got, Texas, we've got two from El Paso. The right. Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry, Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> no one cares about we'll, North we'll, Texas anyway. We'll come, we'll come back around. <laughs> Some so, people don't like that smell from the Golden Triangle, but we call it the smell of money. That's right. See, we do Unlike that. Unlike the smell of freedom. We did that. We did that with the smell of cattle. <laughs> okay. Everybody has one, right? Um, so. Uh, Speaking of smells, tell us about the Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission. <laughs> <laughs> this has been quite a saga. This is, uh, you know, I'm thinking of a word that would come right before show. It's a show, if you know what I mean. It has been. Why um, wouldn't you say it? Oh, can we cuss on the air? Oh yeah, absolutely. This it's is it's a, a shit show. Okay, okay. <laughs> it is. All right, jump right. It in. has been a shit show. Um, I think that they're 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 actually cleaning it up now. Um, this started back when we began breaking stories about their their travel uh their junkets to hawaii and san diego and florida top brass going on these expensive trips uh spending thousands of dollars in taxpayer money and I'm kind of bragging about it and bragging about it in a flyer that they created and I, and I keep having trouble explaining to people over and over we did not create this flyer i, I gotta tell you my very first reaction on the day that the flyer ran was I can't believe we did that kind of artwork on a story. And then I read the caption, and it was like, I'm so glad we didn't do that kind of artwork. <laughs> Todd does much better work they, than that. They did it inside stories. TABC, yeah. So. Yeah, TABC illustration. So basically, this was a flyer that was created on a government computer during work hours to depict boozing it up on your money, on your dime. And um, one of the uh, top brass... Uh, who helped create this, Sherry Cook, the executive director, ended up uh, retiring, quote, retiring. Um, Governor Abbott, Greg Abbott, called it a resignation and said it was a good start to cleaning up the agency. And boy, was he right that it was just a start because um, she is one of six now top-ranking TABC people who have left since we started this. Um, The legislature, of course, has reacted. They cut off their out-of-state travel privileges pretty quickly. I mean, not long after the story came out, that happened, and it ended up getting staying in the budget all the way through the process. And then <clears throat> um, uh, Representative Sarah Davis, uh, who's the chair of the House uh, Committee on General Investigating and Ethics, 
staged a brutal hearing and put that flyer out actually on the witness desk and so made every, all of these top officials sit in front of that flyer for three hours so nobody gets to sit there and say i haven't seen it or <laughs> right yeah <laughs> oh it's right there in front of <laughs> well you. that was a signal to me it was like mm, 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 put those flyers out yeah, and right um and it was i think four days after the hearing that uh sherry cook resigned um, then at the next meeting, her last meeting, Steven Weinberg, a commissioner, abruptly quit. Um, after that, uh, we wrote about the Specs case, which was pretty much a, a case of government regulation run awry, where they, they wanted to take, basically give the business death penalty to the largest liquor retailer. They would have, it was like a three-quarter billion dollar penalty, wasn't it? Right. They, they, I mean, they it was wanted like 700 and something 713 million. million. Wow. I remember that because 713 is the Houston area code. So oh. <laughs> I don't know if that was on purpose, but that's how much it added up to. Just was, for you, Jim. Rhymes with Houston. $713 million. And the judges came back and go, no, I don't think it should be $713 million. In fact, I don't think there should be any fines at all. And no, I don't want you to uh, take any of their permits away. In fact, the permits that they have requested, the new permits to start expanding, they have the green light for that and no fines and maybe a warning for a, a, a violation of this arcane credit law that right. unlike most businesses where, you know, you, you can't ever, you know, they 30 to 60 day pay or whatever, you have to pay every so often your your right. your, cre- your wholesalers. Um Again, part of this arcane liquor law. It's one law. of those weird liquor laws that was made after Prohibition, right? Right. To keep gangsters out of the Texas beer business. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, <clears throat> so was the Specs case a kind of decision in this agency made by the top of the agency or made somewhere down in the bowels of the agency where nobody was paying attention? No, no. It was it was the top of the agency. Right. Uh, yeah, the chief auditor was all over it, Dexter Jones. Um, and so was uh, the general counsel, who's now gone, Emily Helm. Um, and it was just like a three-year investigation. Um, and I talked to the Specs lawyer, and he said he knew something was uh, awry when he looked at this settlement agreement that they gave him in, I think it was 2006, early 2016. And, you know, you're, you're supposed to stay in your silo in the liquor industry. If you're a retailer, you can't have dealings with wholesalers. Right. If you're a wholesaler, you can't have dealings with manufacturers. If you're a manufacturer, you know, you all have to stay in your silo. And basically, these were alleged violations that money was going the wrong way. You know, and one of the problems was right. that a wholesaler had, uh, they have a record of $1.5 million going to specs from a wholesaler. They're like, aha, you're taking money from a wholesaler. And as it right. turned out, they, all they did was they overpaid a $1.5 million invoice. They paid, they sent $3 million. And so the, the money came back. So the money came back because it was like, oh, you, you actually paid this invoice twice. Wow. And so they put that in this settlement agreement. And they're like, this isn't a violation. So we get at this so question. Anyway. This is kind of hilarious. She spells it differently, but we have a question from Sherry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do we really need the TABC in this day and age? What would happen if it were abolished? Well, there have there has been some talk about that. That basically you could you you would have you would enforce liquor violations in the same way that um, you would any other violation that the the, the police departments and county sheriffs and uh, uh, DPS and all that could just do this. I do think, though, that you have to recognize that alcohol isn't bubble gum. I mean, it is right. it is a dangerous product. You can die from alcohol poisoning, and uh, obviously minors shouldn't be 
uh, drinking alcohol. Um, and well, isn't so, TABC the one that goes into like <clears throat> bars and and does inspections, too? right? Like health inspections, or does the health yeah, department do that? No, no, exactly. I mean, they they oversee um, all kinds of different regulations, right. in, including minors, obviously, and. They, they do a lot of stuff on trafficking issues, human trafficking, because it turns out that a lot of that happens in bars. And so hmm. um, they're sort of on the front lines of that, though. So there, there is I think there is a reason to have liquor regulation. But some of them have ended up getting kind of, you know, if you look at them, you go, well, what does this make sense? How does this make sense in the modern world in the right. same way that why can't I buy a Tesla from? straight from the manufacturer and well we just had a big fight over craft beer and the beer distributors and right you know they keep testing the new businesses keep testing the old business regulations here so right and you know like the the beer uh the cash law not the credit law but but a beer when when you deliver beer when a when a wholesale uh beer distributor distributes beer to say a 7-eleven they have to pay that person in cash now they can pay with a debit card or like an electronic transfer, but it ha- the cash has to go from the retailer to the distributor before midnight. No credit, no no credit, checks, no, no credit. Yeah. So I mean, what other business do you have out there that can't take money on? You know, can't take a delivery of something on credit. Drugs. So, well, yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. But there, there. That's how the cartels do it. I'm yeah, not right. But there, there are a lot of reasons. Why, I mean, and there are a lot of other states. That, that have uh, more liberal laws right. like uh, in, in California, small, you know, in, in other words, liberal, uh, liberalized in the classic sense that more freedom, more Not as regulated. free market. Right. Exactly. Right. And like in California, you know, if you use the word liberal in California, people might have a different idea what I'm talking about. But you can buy Kirkland tequila from Costco in California. I have friends who bring me some uh, periodically, and it's actually pretty good. Um, <laughs> but, that seems but, to be your favorite reference. Right. But it, well, I know, because well, I like to go to Costco, but if you go to Costco here, I know there, there's a liquor store at the Costco, but Attached that's but it, to it, but it's not, not owned. Right. It, it, it has to deal. by law. There's another kind of nutty law that uh, you cannot have any publicly traded company own any piece of a liquor company. It has to be um, right. Like family owned or privately owned or whatever, it can't it can't be a publicly traded corporation, right. and that's one of the things that have, have kept some people out of the liquor business that would probably want to get into the and, liquor business and protected a lot of people who are in the liquor business. Correct, and that's so. one of the things that ends up happening is that these laws that were passed with the with you know I think good intentions because there was a lot of mafia, uh, as we know Al Capone was in the liquor business right. and. Um, so these laws were designed to prevent vertical integration. Um, but what started out as maybe a good idea and have a good purpose for it, have a lot of people think, uh, you know, this is not useful anymore. And it's basically used to protect monopolies. Quickly here, uh, how close is the governor and the executive branch to kind of having a handle on TABC now? I think pretty close because uh, Kevin Lilly, uh, Houston businessman who was appointed by Abbott to be the chairman of the commission and to clean things up um, is really taking it seriously. I mean, I think that's the reason why you've seen these departures of people yeah. who were involved in some of the stuff that we wrote about. Um, and he, uh, yesterday, they tapped a retired, highly decorated retired general and lawyer, uh, Bentley Nettles, to oversee the, to be executive director, run the day-to-day operations. Drain so, the swamp. Drain the swamp. And I think 
the draining has begun. So from right. from your perspective on this, it, you know, because we've got what six people now that have been you know removed right. or have left. I mean, is is this just a simple thing about replacing people, or is it just seems like it's a culture thing at the TABC too? It's not that this was something you know the TABC has kind of been a target in the past too. I mean, is it just as simple as removing people that's going to change the culture there, or is there there more that needs to happen over there? Well, I mean, there, there, there is uh, again like these sort of these arcane laws, and so TABC is going to go through sunset uh, right. in the next sunset uh, session. This is a periodic agency review. The legislature, does. right, right, right. The periodic review where it's like an existential review, where like you know, why do we need you and justify your existence? And so that's going to be. The, the, it couldn't have come at a worse time in a way for entrenched interests that want to keep things the way they are. So there's, I think that that's going to be a, a, the the moment at which a lot of these questions are answered about what is the culture, what you know, how can this be fixed, um, and does it need legislation? Um, but you know, the people that are were engaged in the travel, uh, the controversial travel, and some yeah. of the controversial actions, most of them are gone now. Interesting. Okay, so while we're talking about train wrecks, let's move to San Antonio. And the, I thought you were going to use the existential <laughs> review part of it. Oh my segue. God, this is this has sort of gone into <laughs> all kind of segue. The never-ending story in San Antonio, down in the federal courthouse, uh, the John Wood Courthouse. Um, they're doing redistricting again, or still, or always uh, always right <laughs> so you've been down there in the courtroom what's going on so uh the state is back in court this week over its political maps you know about six years after they first drew the first round of them and basically the the trial this week focuses on what boundaries we're going to use in 2018 um and this is congressional seats congressional and, texas and, house and seats. the texas house and obviously there are we're sort of pressed for time election administrators say that they need to know by october what's going to happen um if the court rules against the state and says we need to redraw some of these maps that's going to require some time as well um, but really throughout the week it's been um the plaintiff sort of minority rights groups explaining why the texas map the 2013 one which lawmakers adopted um, um, that year after the court redrew the 2011 version of the map, which they which was immediately challenged in court as well. Right. Um, but this time they're they're challenging the 2013 map. They say it's unconstitutional. They say it violates the voting rights of minority voters across the state. Um, there are a couple of specific districts that are being challenged, but the whole map is also being challenged. And so depending, so they've been going through sort of very dense expert testimony, um, potential redraws, sort of showing how the, the map could have been drawn in a way that sort of respected minority voters a little bit more, considering they were part of the big growth right. that in, in the last decade. Um, so it, it's been a lot of that. They've got a couple more days left. Jim is down. Jim Malowitz is down there to cover the congressional part, which started sort of late in the day yesterday. Um, and we're sort of waiting to see how all of this ends. Do you have an idea, at, you know, kind of at the extremes here, how many seats might be in play? I guess at one extreme, it would be zero. The court would say everything's fine. Go away. Right. At the other extreme, they might say this many districts in the House need to be changed or this many districts in, the, in Congress ought to be changed. What are the, I, I guess that's more 
What are the lawyers pleading? I mean, I think at a at a minimum, if you if the the court earlier this year ruled that the 2011 version of the map um, was drawn to intentionally discriminate and they flagged specific districts, and so just in the congressional map, there were three districts that they flagged, two of which remain unchanged in the current map. Mm-hmm. So that sort of gives you you know sort of a, a bit of a heads up of what they might be looking at. Uh, so I think at a minimum, those two districts would maybe be changed under sort of the best case scenario for plaintiffs. Um, and that's CD23, represented by Will Hurd. That's the one that um, goes from San Antonio over to El Paso and right. takes in most of the border. And then the, the Lloyd Doggett seat, which runs from Austin down to San Antonio, like a sort of fajita strip. Right, runs um, down to down I-35. <laughs> You've been waiting to say that. Yeah, holding that one in advance. But, you know, <laughs> but it basically follows I-35 from right, Austin yeah. down the road, right? So, and obviously, if you make any changes to those maps, there are potential changes to other maps. Right. Um, the, on the on the state side, there are a couple of proposals. There, um, one would draw a couple of additional sort of coalition <clears throat> districts where minorities um, get to really choose the the lawmaker for those the seats. Coalition districts where neither Hispanics nor African Americans are in the majority, but together right. they make up a majority. Right. right, and so there there are a handful of seats on the House side as well. Uh, I think it's going to really depend on you know they're sort of trying to prove that there is vote dilution here, and right. that's sort of what the plaintiffs have been focusing on. Though I will say some of the maps that they presented in court don't really you know it's going to be hard to take away Republicans' advantage in Texas. Right. But and the courts the the maps that they presented don't really do that. They're not. It didn't seem like they were aiming to pair up Republican incumbents or unseat any of them. In fact, there was one version of the congressional map that keeps even, um, like, Farenthold down in um, Corpus Christi sort of keeps his seat, even though it sort of rejiggers it a little bit and rejiggers the districts around it to give minority voters an additional opportunity district there. So Farenthold so, or another Republican would probably right. still. Yeah. yeah, so so they've been going through some of that. The state obviously is arguing there was no intentional discrimination in any way. Lawmakers only adopted these maps after the court drew them, so how were they intentionally discriminatory in doing that? Um, and that's that's a key question, right? Because we go to this um, bail-in problem. Right, yeah, uh-huh. I mean, if, if the state, if the court rules that the state intentionally discriminated against minorities enough times they can put them back under federal oversight of any changes to their election laws. And the redistricting hearing is playing out at the same time as the voter ID lawsuit is still going through the courts where there was also an intentional discrimination ruling. And then lawmakers did sort of something similar where they went in and made changes to the law after the court ruled something um, again, ruled against them. So it'll be interesting to see, obviously the state, that's sort of their first argument in any of their filings. There was no intent to discriminate. They also say that really the plaintiffs haven't met their burden to prove that there's any sort of vote dilution. Um, right. And they they sort of have been very slowly hedging at that in some of their cross-examination and saying, you know, maybe this, maybe this is adopted because of partisanship. You can't prove that minorities vote together, um, vote cohesively, which is also a requirement that the plaintiffs have to meet. So, um, you know, you and Jim have written that, uh, you know, electoral officials across the state have said they basically need to know by October, you mm-hmm. know, what's going on, what, you know, so they can get the proper materials out and things like that. I mean, 
it's kind of hard to say, but do you do you see that still like is that realistic that there's we're going to see something you know by October because that's that's not that far. I don't. Away. If I have to put some money on it, I would say that the primary election could very likely be delayed because you know it, we're what mid July. Oh, I just heard a bunch of political <laughs> stomachs turn. Mm-hmm. This, well, this is I how mean, Ted Cruz got in the Senate. This right, is how well, Ted Cruz. Right. It. It's it's mid July. Say we get a ruling at the earliest you know end of July, and that seems a little unlikely. Right. Um, but say we get a ruling. You're saying the court is really, really, really slow? Well, I'm saying the same judge is also considering the Sanctuary Cities right, bill. So right. he's a little busy with Texas at the moment right. uh, or they with the legislature. Are. Full employment. But um, I don't, I mean, they have to rule on this argument. Then the court decides, if the court rules against the state, then it decides that the maps need to be redrawn and in what way it could give lawmakers the opportunity to do that or draw them themselves and then at any point in all of this the state could appeal any sort of ruling both the ruling that the boundaries need to be changed and whatever map comes from this and that would go to the supreme court and so it just seems like there are too many moving parts and a lot of parties in play. I mean there's there's so much in play that I don't know that we get this done there's a time. question here from uh, I think it's April I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name any chance for Austin proper to get a congressional district that's not really in play here is it no I mean the the part of it in redrawing the Lloyd Doggett seat um, right. which was sort of you know they broke up Austin and I think it's like five or six mm-hmm. congressional districts right. um, even in some of the proposals to redraw that it really makes it a Bear County seat right. um, and not an Austin seat so I, I don't know but again the maps that they're presenting are more so to meet sort of the legal standard that they have to prove to the court they're less of uh, this is how we should remedy this so, I mean, the court could decide, you know, we need to redraw something here, but it hasn't been part of the initial maps that were presented. Another question here is, uh, is there a way for grassroots to get involved in the redistricting process? Not really now, right? No, I don't think so. Or when mean, the legislature comes around in 2020, eventually, 2021. Eventually, if it comes yeah. back. I mean, I think, you know, a part of this that we don't really write about is sort of the, the real human part of it, right? That, you know, in the state where elected officials, including Greg Abbott, sort of place a lot of importance on the sanctity of voting and their right to do that, you know, you could have a court that could rule that for the last six years, minority voters haven't had that right or that 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 right has been sort of stymied in some way. Um, so I think if anything, it would. that's sort of where I could see maybe the grassroots coming in to sort of vouch for themselves in some way, right. but I, I don't know that that happens. I don't know that that makes a difference for a while. Okay. Um, uh, Facebook viewers, if you want to, you can ask us questions via Facebook. Um, even if you're not a Facebook viewer, I guess you're hearing this late. You'll know next week. Um, before we leave, I want to talk about what's going on next Tuesday. Um, Legislature's back. I don't back. want to talk about <laughs> that. <laughs> Greg, Abbott's, Greg Abbott's office is passing around 20 for 20 buttons. It's yeah. sort of like a misunderstanding of the ESPN series. Um, <laughs> he has 20, legis- 20 pieces of legislation, wants all 20 of them to pass. Uh, they have 30 days. They start on Tuesday. Um, he dropped the official pronouncement that he wants the sunset safety net legislation out. And as soon as the Senate passes that, giant asterisk here, um, then he'll drop 19 more issues. You want to run us through this? Yeah. So uh, you know, this nothing that he proclaimed was necessarily a surprise because he had announced this earlier this or soon after the session. Uh, 
you know, the, the items that obviously the, the sunset safety net is a must, and that addresses, I think, was the Texas Medical Board, mm-hmm. um, which right. deals with licensing of uh, physicians and stuff. So that's a must. That didn't get passed during the regular session, so they have to work, wrap that up first. And then, uh, you know, the governor said that, you know, while if I'm going to call these lawmakers back, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to maximize uh, the efficiency of this. So he added, you know, 19 other items. A lot of them are local control items. A lot of them are, you know, political hot button issues. You know, uh, Alexa, you can talk more about the, the bathroom bill, which is which is back. Your favorite. Yeah. Um, Interpret my silence there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you don't want to talk about it. Maybe you're still in denial or about it. Uh, but uh but yeah, I mean, the the interesting thing will be is, is you know how many of these things are going to have to pass for the governor to consider it a success. I mean, you he know, said twenty for twenty. In, he's on saying those twenty buttons. for twenty. <laughs> if they don't pass, that's a lot to cover in thirty days. This is interesting. I mean, some of these issues are you know really diff- would be really difficult to pass. For example, he's proposed a thousand dollar raise for Texas teachers, and it would be in it would involve merit pay. It would involve local governments, local school districts paying for the raises and not the state. And even if you like all of those ideas, it hasn't been considered yet. And so you'd have to go from, you know, soup to nuts in in 30 days. All the teachers, I will point out, are um, out of school right now and probably could make a trip to Austin. So there's probably a possibility of protests. That That would be a big lift even... Even in a regular. I mean, it's, it's a big lift. It's just, you know, you've got to kind of start the policy machinery and get people in front of that. That one's a hard one to pass. Can we talk about this efficiency? I mean, the, this whole thing is like, I'm going to bring lawmakers back. I'm going to make it worth the taxpayers' time. I mean, Senator Van Taylor, who was carrying, who was doing some of the sunset bills in the Senate, mm-hmm. when, when the speaker and the lieutenant governor were at an impasse over bathrooms and the Senate took the sunset legislation hostage, he said, you know, we can finish this in a couple of days. We'll be done and we'll be ready to go. So the the sort of argument that I'm going to make it worth taxpayers' time and add all these other things sort of flies in the face of the fact that they could have passed the sunset bill in a couple of days and left and not have charged taxpayers like a million dollars for we the had, rest of the We session. had a recent, under Perry, I can't remember the exact year, but we had a recent uh, sunset safety net special session that Perry yeah, called the, them in the next day on, January, on July 1st and mm-hmm. the idea was you know I want to do this quickly and he put it two days before the extended July 4th weekend mm-hmm. and the legislature came in bada bing bada boom got out and went off and cooked Shot their hot fireworks. dogs and drank their beer right yeah. so I think this is kind of a risky moment for Abbott um, in the sense that that he can have a risky moment because look he's he's got what how much money does he have is it like 40 million dollars well, he's going to announce how much he raised uh most recently but he has you know 30 35 in the bank now right i assume another 10 or so he's going to have 50 million dollars basically right. um i don't think one cabillion I, I, I honestly think that it's going to be hard for anyone to catch him whether it's in a republican primary and much less a Democrat. I mean, we don't even know who is it. Is it Trey Martinez Fisher? Maybe Alan Vaught? We're talking about people right. who have lost House races or Senate races, people that um, nobody's ever heard of that, are, you know, probably won't even raise what Gary Morrow raised in 1998, which was about, I don't know, $5 million or $8 million, right. something like that. Right. I mean, Life you know, money, yeah, right? exactly. I mean, like, you know, but having said all that, this is the, you know, special sessions, the focus is so much more on the governor than it is right. in, in during a regular session because he sets the agenda. And if they don't get it done, people are going to be looking more for Abbott 
to Abbott um, than to anyone else. I mean, yeah, the people get mad at Joe Strauss, the House Speaker, if he bottles some things up, but, you know, he doesn't uh, get elected by statewide voters, right. and and, um, right. and Greg Abbott does. So out of all the moments that you look in Greg Abbott's career, what would be more high stakes than this? I mean, this is, he's never called a special session. This is his first special session. Right. It's right before the, his, uh, you know, right before an election year. Um, and it's on like super hot button issues in the Republican primary um, and including the bathroom bill that a lot of CEOs are warning if you do this, you know, suffer the consequences. So this is this is about as high stakes as it's it's going to get for Greg Abbott before the election. Do you, do you get the impression that he acknowledges that or appreciates that? Because we've written that he's that, you know, his office has been reaching out to all these associations, business associations. They've been trying to strategically you know, roll out these sponsors of these of these of the various topics that they're introducing. I mean, uh, it seems like they're, you know, certainly, you know, in comparison with the regular session, really just, you know, trying to let let people know that they're out there and they're trying to, you know, put their mark on this special session at every step of the way. Right. At least so far. Yeah. I mean, they're def they've definitely been proactive, but, you know, these things have a way of taking on a life of themselves. I mean, it's like a tax bill. I remember covering George W. Bush's tax bill, and it was like they were proactive and everything. But then all of a sudden you have interest groups. I mean, you, in, in the same way, right. you're going to have the grassroots. You're going to have Apple and CEOs of the you know, and, of and, and cuts, NFL right. and all these other people that are going to come out and, and, and uh, talk about it and criticize it. Um, you know, property taxes, that's a hard thing to do. It really, it's re it sounds like, yeah, cut my property taxes. That Yeah, everybody wants that, right? But Well, and there's less going on. Yeah. So you can also see things right. die before your eyes, whereas during the regular session, things can get lost. You know, yeah. they're passing all sorts of things in these really long days. But this time around, you almost have a scorecard where you can go off and check off whether something died or not. And at right. the end Either of the day, pro or con. Got, it's right. like, you, you, know, you know, like it or don't like it. You get to, you get, so what's a, you know, a couple of things here uh, quickly, you know, where do you think the other two leaders are? Joe Strauss got that weird vote out of the Bear County Republican Party, kind of a vote of no confidence from the party at home um, for being in, in their minds insufficiently conservative. I don't know if you saw this. They have um, I don't have the numbers in my head, but in my hand, but uh, something like 220 voting members of the party, but 68 or so constitutes a quorum. And so they waited until almost everybody was gone. Meeting. They got a 36 to 30 vote or something like that, small minority of the party. And still, it's a slap, right, uh, from his home party. So he comes in on the on the grounds of that. Patrick has been trying to position this you know, really the whole year as I'm, you know, the Senate's conservative and the House um, isn't being allowed to be conservative by its leader. How's that all shape up? I think this is a, a very tough moment for Joe Strauss. I mean, he's no stranger to being rebuked by his own party. I mean, this is happening at state at state conventions where they've barely been able to keep this off of it, like some kind of formal sanction or whatever. They had to use, you know, tricks to, to keep people away from doing that. There's a lot of grassroots anger at the speaker. And if you're a Republican member um, 
and any of this gets to the floor, like a bathroom bill, for example, I mean, they can talk about all day long about how, oh, that, you know, this is bad for business, all that. But if you have to take a vote on this, right. what are you going to do? And also, again, again we're, we're, we're getting very close to a primary now. So these people are thinking about their own survival. I mean, they think about their own survival all the time, but it really kicks into high really, gear. Really, 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 right. Yeah, at a moment well, like this. And so you have a lot of stuff that's very near and dear to the hearts of the grassroots that, that are the most reliable voters in their districts. So this is a tough moment if, 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 if some of those bills that, that the grassroots want gets close to the floor and and it doesn't happen and they blame Joe Strauss. I mean, I don't know what I don't know what would happen. I think it's also a really interesting. I mean, if you look at the role the bathroom bill has played on this cuz it's really led to some of that sort of isolation of Joe the political isolation of Joe Strauss at least at the Capitol is that, you know, you had someone who went from saying this isn't a priority of mine to this is bad for business to I oppose this to this could hurt vulnerable children to saying, you know, I don't want to suicide on my conscience. And that sort of has happened as the public awareness campaign around this issue has picked up, too, to where you saw folks coming to the Capitol in unprecedented numbers and saying, don't, you know, protect my children, protect me. And I think the public awareness of this issue has increased so much since this debate started. And I wonder if the sort of the bathroom bill in some ways is just like a highlight of the disconnect on some issues between the debate at the Capitol, where it's all sort of insider baseball games and sort of what's happening outside of Texas. Now, I don't know that that actually even matters, though, when you get into a Republican primary. Right. But as someone who's been following the bathroom debate pretty closely, it's been really interesting to watch those two things happen at the same time. Yeah. So what do you think is a minimum win for the governor? Oh, yeah, that's a good—I mean— I may be in the minority on this. I think in certain ways he's kind of, I think he's kind of already won in a way because no matter what at the, happens at the end of this, he can say, well, I brought these folks back. I, you know, I can point the finger at them and say they, they're the ones who didn't accomplish this. I'm, you know, I'm the one who, who called them here. So I set the table. They had the food fight. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I, I don't have a number on the number of bills, but I, th- I think he could, you know, from his perspective, he could probably claim a victory. I'm not saying it, he would be a winner if they, you know, if they don't pass more than you know, a handful number of bills. Uh, I don't know. See, the thing is, it's like in a ge- in a general election, people are going to know that he called them back, and they're not really going to care about the number of bills. Right. But in a primary election, that's a little different, where you have folks actually counting down. I, I don't know. I just don't know how many bills. I'd say maybe the prop the property. Pra- what is it? The spending caps or whatever it's actually right. called. Um, I think that'll probably... I think it depends on whether you're talking to <laughs> right. Dennis Bonin or Paul Bettencourt. Right? Yeah. I think that'll probably be a, a big litmus test. I don't know about the bathroom bill. Um, okay. Obviously, those are the two issues that are carrying over from the regular, so I would probably think that they might be sort of the ones that the grassroots folks and the primary voters might be looking at. Got a guess? I think if he got property taxes but not the bathroom bill, you know, you declare victory and go home. And then you've also saved yourself from this blowback from CEOs and right. conferences that, you know, that, that might – then they, they could – cancel some huge event and that would be a big conflagration you know we've talked about this before it's a terrible problem for republicans you know because their their business conservatives are here and their cultural conservatives are there and you just assume they were all singing the same song before you voted on it the problem is the democrats are so i hate to use the word pathetic but 
They just don't, did. They, they, they got <laughs> do you nothing. Know? Yeah. Do you really they, hate <laughs> they got nothing. I mean, like this is this right. is. Think about this. Donald Trump. You know, there's a lot of blowback on that. He's at the, some of the lowest approval ratings in history. Right. Um, you know, uh, midterm elections or referendums on the party in power. And the Democrats don't. We do. We still don't have a marquee candidate for governor. And when you don't have somebody at the top of the ticket, that's at least minimally exciting, you know, or is you know, seems to have a chance. Then how are you going to take Famous advantage? Or of these, interesting or something, right? How are you going to take advantage of these lower ballot races? Yeah. That's all the time we have. If you like listening to the TripCast every week, please do us a favor and leave a review on iTunes. Those ratings help us reach more listeners like you. And if you value the Tribune's nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom, please consider making a donation at support.texastribune.org. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music. On behalf of Ian, Alexa, Jay, and our producers, Todd and Bobby, this is Ross. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Buenos días, Todd. Buenas tardes, Todd. <laughs>